Blighty Thank God is based on the diary our family discovered my late father, Ron Chapman, wrote in 1943 when he was a young RAF pilot serving in the Middle East and Italy. In this grave hour... I'm Neil Chapman and a former journalist. The podcast highlights the stories I uncovered when I researched his diary, along with other historical sources. And that consequently, this country is at war with Germany. Diseases are the big winners in wartime. World War II was no different, except in one sense. Unusually, more fighters died of battle wounds than from disease. But that didn't mean nasty diseases weren't around, particularly in the areas where my father served. During his time in West Africa, between 1941 and 1942, is probably when he caught malaria. Throughout his life, he suffered periodic malarial fevers. Postings to West Africa were counted as double time served overseas because of such hazards. Then, when he moved to the Middle East... The list of deadly and contagious diseases included bubonic plague, typhus, smallpox, as well as hepatitis and dysentery. Rabies and tuberculosis were also potential threats. I was privileged to be able to ask eminent virologist and fellow of the Royal Society, Professor Geoffrey Smith, what vaccinations were available in the 1940s, particularly for Allied troops posted overseas during World War II. If you look at the list of vaccines we have today, very many of them were made from the mid-1950s onwards. Well, in the Second World War, there really weren't very many vaccines that were available. There had been several produced, but whether these were widely available is uncertain. Um, I mean, the ones I know about were smallpox, rabies, tuberculosis, and and, uh, a live attenuated vaccine for yellow fever. Why weren't vaccines available? Well, a lot of them that were developed after the war in the 1950s and onwards um, were reliant upon other scientific advances. In my father's diary, the first disease he mentions encountering is typhus. When visiting the RAF base at Shaiba in southern Iraq. The diary entry is read by grandson Phil. Saturday, March 27th. It is not certain that we leave on Monday. We are waiting for the Bisley pilot and a box of tools from Habania. There's a typhus scare here at the moment. It is carried by lice, and a lot of the natives around here are lousy. It was unfair to blame the local population for the outbreak of Laos-born typhus. Troop and refugee movements, crowded camps and prisons, undernourishment and lack of bathing and laundry facilities provided ideal conditions for typhus-carrying lice and many of those conditions existed and had nothing to do with the local people. During World War I, typhus killed three million people. So it's no wonder that at the outbreak of the Second World War, it was regarded as one of the most dangerous of the potential epidemic diseases expected to spread during or after the war. With no vaccine, the American military used to spray its soldiers with DDT powder to control the spread of the lice that could carry typhus. It was a particularly horrible disease. 
disassociation, as it was known, was one of the symptoms, along with pain, vomiting, high fever, deafness, limb loss and psychosis that could lead to suicides. About one in five who caught it died. No wonder that when my father next came across it directly, again in Sheiba, he kept well clear. Friday, April 16th. Took nearly four hours to Sheiba, and on landing there we had to hang out for about one and a half hours till Peel authorised us out. We couldn't leave Tarmac, as if we did, we had to see the surveillance medical officer, Typhus. Took off and made Bahrain in four hours, twenty minutes. Quite a smooth trip. The outbreak he encountered in Sheiba, first in March and again in April, lasted until June of 1943. For the second time in the lives of most of us, we are at war. Throughout World War II, it's estimated that typhus infected at least 100,000 people and killed 25,000, probably more, especially in Asia. During 1943, a typhus jab was given to Allied troops. In September and October, my father records getting a series of three injections. Friday, October 8th. Up at 6am, shaved and dressed, then out on drone. Very shitty first thing. Had breakfast and made up pay books. Held pay parade. Sharped a while and then went down and had final typhus jab. Stung a bit. Given there was a war on, of course medical developments weren't shared with the enemy. The Nazis had to find their own way of protecting their troops against typhus. Something they were desperate to do when fighting Russians on the Eastern Front put them in very real danger from the disease. But developing one was made difficult for the Germans because Allied bombers had destroyed the SS Hygiene Institute facilities responsible for producing one. So the head of the institute came up with the idea to enlist qualified Jewish inmates at Buchenwald concentration camp to assist the SS. But a Jewish doctor managed to dupe Nazi overseers and have his colleagues send an ineffective typhus vaccine to the German soldiers while at the same time inoculating fellow campmates with what they believed was an effective injection. Only during the post-war Nuremberg war crimes trials was the full extent of this karmic deception revealed to the Nazis facing the court. Surprisingly, given the horrors of the concentration camps, the Nazis were outraged at the disregard for medical ethics displayed by the Jewish doctors. December 7th. 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Despite the risks, thankfully, my father didn't catch typhus. But it turns out the three jabs he received against the disease didn't protect him. In the late 1960s, research concluded that what was given to Allied troops during the war wasn't effective. So with no effective vaccine for the Allied troops against typhus... Professor Smith described to me the steps usually taken to prevent the disease spreading. Well, I don't know what the typhus vaccine was that was being administered and called a vaccine in the uh, 1940s. But, I mean, that disease is carried by um, insect vectors, as are many diseases like malaria. And and so there, the the challenge is to get rid of the insect vector or or the biting um, carrier of the disease. 
And if you do that, you essentially protect people from catching it. If if somebody already got it, well, then you had to try and treat the bacterial infection with um, a, an antimicrobial compound. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. In June of 1943, and for most of the summer that year, my father was with a special detachment posted from RAF Habania to Baghdad Airport. He was asked to go by the person in charge of the detachment, Flight Officer Featonby, who my father flew with and got along with personally. At the back of the diary, he wrote a number of pen portraits of some of the people he served with and what he thought of them. At first hearing, my father's opinion of Featonby seems quite harsh, mocking anxieties and observing a degree of neediness. Shortish bloke, lace curtains language, very ice sort of chap, very helpful, good pilot, an only child obviously, used to plenty of money and good surroundings, so-called. Do him good to have to live on very little, done ops in desert but hasn't cured him, even two years as a sergeant failed to do that. Needs his mother or wife to look after him. Bags of imaginary illnesses. Stomach trouble and falling hair worry him no end. Likes to do everything well. Easily can take the piss out of him. No bother at all. Likes plenty of sympathy. Doesn't like children. Likes dogs. Kids would interfere with his pleasure. Very self-centred. But despite it all, my father liked Featonby and recognised that he, like many colleagues, was becoming war-weary. Nice bloke, though, for all his faults, and if you can stand him and figure him out. On the whole, everything considered and weighed, good bloke. Popular with the blokes. Has had his fill out here. Ought to go home. The detachment's working role seems to have been to coordinate the military air traffic through Baghdad Airport, especially those carrying VIPs. But in between the arrival and departure of people like Lord Mountbatten and Noel Coward, detailed in the Blighty Thank God episode brief encounters with VIPs, one regular task was to cull the local wild dog population. Saturday, June 26. Had dinner, then went shooting till dark. Got a pie dog in the leg at about 400 times magnification. Not bad shooting using sights at 1,600 yards on rifle. Wednesday, September 15th. Up at 6.15am, washed, dressed and into control room. Had breakfast and saw running. No mail for me. Funny. Everybody else got quite a bit yesterday. Shot at Jackal. Fentonby killed it with the rifle. My revolver kicks a bit. At first I thought my father and his colleagues were indulging in a cruel pastime. But then I realised the wild dogs posed two gruesome threats. First, they could dig up the bodies of the dead. Secondly, they carried rabies and could attack the living posing a very real threat. Rabies can not only be fatal, but it is a particularly horrible death. There again, the protection administered when someone had been exposed to rabies was not very pleasant either. At the time, it involved 25 injections over 21 days. And towards the end of 1943, about 20 pilots from the same unit as my father communications flight, had to receive a course of rabies injections when they were in contact with rabid dogs. 
The pilots ended up grounded for 24 days because the injection serum made a number of them sick. To add insult, they were ordered not to drink alcohol until just before Christmas. I asked Professor Smith about the background to the rabies vaccine. Well, the rabies vaccine uh, has, has moved on a bit from the time that Louis Pasteur first made it in the 1880s. And, and, and what Pasteur did was to uh, take material from an animal that would have died of rabies, and usually the virus would be present in the central nervous system. And then he just dried that material for increasing lengths of time. And the longer uh, he, he, he dried it, the less virus infectivity remained. And then he was giving um, essentially that material as the vaccine. So pretty crude, and it would have had to be given by injection. My father's reaction to the news of a rabid dog on the base and the prospect of the injections was to hastily arrange to fly off the base and stay away for a couple of days. On his return, no one put two and two together that he'd been absent when the first set of jabs were administered. So he avoided the discomfort of receiving the injections, as well as the drinking ban. To find maps, photographs and other material associated with each episode, as well as the complete diary with my research notes, visit the website blightythankgod.co.uk. The diary extracts are read by Ron Chapman's eight grandchildren. He'd be proud of all of them. <laughs>